We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back, score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch, or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding and check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association ND. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome into the Rotowire NBA show. It is Wednesday, September 2nd. You're listening on Dash Radio's NBA channel. You go to rotowire.com slash dash. That'll get you 10 free days of access to our website, rotowire.com. Alex Barutha joining me, Nick Whalen, as always this week. Alex, we are recording, as we always do, uh, late Tuesday night. And with the way the schedule broke this week, we were actually able to catch the full late game, which has not been the case in past weeks. So we're hitting record like five minutes after jazz nuggets just wrapped up and I mean, talk about a game seven that lived up to the hype. I mean, yeah, on one side you have Utah shooting 38% from the field, 23% from three, 37% from the field, 25% from three. Um, and yet a, a super entertaining game about as entertaining as it could have been for how sloppy and at times ugly a, a game that finished 80 to 78 in favor of Denver could have been. Yeah, um, you know, the, the focus was obviously going to be on Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell, considering they'd both been playing out of their minds. Um, Murray finished with 17 points and 21 shots, not particularly good. Mitchell finished with 22 points and 22 shots, a little better, but still not amazing. Also had nine turnovers to only one assist, uh, did Mitchell. So this game ended up being a lot more about Gobert versus Jokic, which was a really interesting matchup. Uh, Gobert made some huge plays down the stretch. He had seven offensive rebounds. Uh, Jokic ended up with 30 points, 14 rebounds. Um, so it was really awesome to see those guys kind of take control of the series for one game. Right. It, it, this game was obviously billed as the kind of final showdown between uh, Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray. And in a lot of ways it was, I mean, it was just kind of a, a much sloppier and the, the shots that were falling in games five and especially game six um, for Jamal Murray just were not going down on Tuesday night. One of six from three for Murray, two of eight for Mitchell. Uh, and the, the turnovers really, uh, I think, were the story and, and ultimately were really on the final possession, you know, for Utah, which 
Um, you know, if you're listening to this by now, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the play, but you know, it took them, it took the Jazz two attempts to get the ball to Donovan Mitchell. The first time they get the ball in bounds, and it was so obvious what they were trying to do that Denver basically just blanketed all five defenders on Mitchell, and they forced Utah to call a timeout. Coming out again, they finally get it to Mitchell, and he's basically immediately stripped. You know, he's he's kind of a little bit cavalier with the ball. It, it looked like he was almost trying like a kind of like a sham god type of move, which usually he pulls off pretty pretty effectively. But he put the ball out in front of him. It gets tapped away, and it's going the other way. And, and I was just texting with some friends who were watching the game, and we were both like astonished. You just never see a scenario where the winning team, you know, the team that's up to with like five seconds left as time is ticking off is sprinting the other way for a three on one. You know, usually you hold up, you call, you maybe even call a timeout. You just do something to force the foul and, and keep the advantage. And instead, I don't necessarily hate the move just because it was a three on one and it was a pretty clean look at the rim for, for Tory Craig, but he misses what's, you know, a very convertible layup with about five seconds left. And, you know, all of a sudden Mike Conley gets based on the circumstances, a pretty good look to almost win this game at the buzzer. Yeah, um, that was that was definitely surprising uh, when they ran down the court. But you're right; it it seemed like it'd be an open layup, and he really should have made it. It wasn't contested uh, very much at all. Um, yeah, and then like you like you mentioned, Conley goes up the court, kind of acts like he's gonna shoot. I forget who's runs up to defend him on the three point line. He kind of ducks under that guy, runs up and shoots a three with a second left, and that hits the inside of the rim. Mm-hmm. Um, and by all accounts, it looked like it was going in until like the very uh, right. last second, um, which would have been an absolutely uh, <laughs> insane ending to this to this whole series. It was right. one of those things as the ball was in the air that it felt like, wait, this, is this actually happening? Right. This one did not feel like some of the other games in this series. It's really felt like, you know, Denver kind of ripped some wins away from Utah, uh, especially the last couple of games. And this one, I, I don't really feel like either team deserved to win this game and, and Conley winning it in that fashion would have been super fitting. Like you said, it, it would have been, you know, a blown layup leading to essentially a lucky shot on a night when none of those type of shots were falling for either team. But uh, you alluded to it before. I mean, this was really it, probably Nikola Jokic's best overall game of the series. And I, I think the overall sloppiness for both teams overshadows the fact that, you know, he was really the only dependable offensive option outside of Jamal Murray, who had some big shots late, but, you know, 7 of 21, not his ideal night. Um, you know, for Jokic to step up, we talked last week about how, you know, he's the guy that at the end of games, you know, kind of has some trouble asserting himself, as a lot of big guys do, as as we saw with Giannis Antetokounmpo last night, which we'll eventually get to. Um, but he was the guy who had the go-ahead basket for for Denver in this game when Jamal Murray, you know, couldn't really shake free. And, and Jokic, you know, just kind of had to insert his shoulder into the chest of, of Rudy Gobert to create room for that hook shot. Um, really, really good game for Nikola Jokic. But, uh, you know, overall, just this, this this game had a very, like, 2004 Pistons-Pacers type of feel to it, where Ben Wallace is is going up against I don't know, one of the Davis <laughs> brothers or whoever was, was with the Pacers at that time. But um, I think we should look forward now, because as fun as this series was, um, there's another series that's going to start now in, in two days. So... You know, with the the way that these playoffs are accelerated, Denver now has really no prep time for the Los Angeles Clippers. And I think this series and then the the OKC Houston series, which finishes up on Wednesday night, both of those series are playing out perfectly if you're the Lakers and the Clippers. Yeah, for the for the Clippers, uh, I think I, I, I mean, I think they'll be able to shut down Jamal Murray a lot easier than the Jazz. Uh, well, the Jazz really couldn't at all, but Patrick Beverly, um, assuming he's fully healthy, can chase Jamal Murray around. I think the focus for Denver will be even more on getting Jokic the ball and trying to get Jokic more shots like we saw from him um, in this last game here in Game 7 because that's the Clippers, really, their one weak spot is their their inter- interior defense with Harrell and Zubac. So it'll be interesting to see how they deal with Jokic, well, whether they'll just swarm him anytime he gets the ball. Uh, in the paint and just make anyone else but Murray and, and Jokic beat them. Um, so I'm I'm interested to see how they deal with that. And I, I mean, Denver's defense has been atrocious, so I don't really see how they're going to stop Kawhi Leonard and, and Paul George either, uh, now that Paul George is actually playing uh, up to his own standards. Right, and honestly, I mean, I don't think we've really seen final form Paul George quite yet. I, I think he has another 
level or two to climb. Um, right. I, I think he kind of set the bar so low early in that series. But I mean, Denver's in real trouble. Obviously, I, I don't think it really would have mattered uh, whether Denver or Utah ultimately pulled out this game. I, I think for me, it's it's Clippers in four, maybe five, um, which isn't ideal as far as the, you know from a viewership perspective in in the second round, but. Uh, the way that, that the Clippers were able to close out Dallas, and I, I know there was some attrition on the side of the Mavs, um, I think Kawhi Leonard is, is completely locked in. And I, I think what will be interesting is, is to see if, you know, if Jokic can exploit, um, I wouldn't say the lack of size with the Clippers, because they, they have kind of remedied some of the issues at center. But, you know, if Zubac isn't on the floor, you know, can Montrez Harrell deal with what's basically, what, a six-inch height difference and a, and a massive weight difference? Harrell did not look good in round one. So obviously Jokic as he is in, in just about any series, I think is, is the major X factor for Denver. Um, but the other big thing that, that I noticed over these last couple of games is, is Gary Harris, who was absolutely awful on offense again uh, in game seven, but has made a huge difference for them on the defensive end, had a couple of like just straight up rips of, of Donovan Mitchell, a, a couple of huge stops in this game. And that was the case in game six as well. I don't think he's necessarily a guy who you can just throw on Paul George or throw on Kawhi Leonard and say, all right, we're good. But having him back, you know, even if he's not giving you much offensively, like I, I think their defense, which was the worst in the bubble without Gary Harris, um, you know, it's still not going to be great. But I, I think he is a major help in that respect. Yeah, he still doesn't have a shot back, but you're right in that Gary. I mean, they they definitely need Gary Harris for his defense. It's very apparent after what happened before he was around uh, in the series and you know, his, his offense hasn't really come around. He's been hurt. His development's kind of stunted, but anything, literally anything they can get on the defensive end will, will help them a ton. Um, and interestingly, yeah, that led to the, you know, reduction in, in Michael Porter Jr.'s minutes, who I'm not sure, uh, played like in the last 10 minutes of the fourth quarter. Right. He checked out, I think with just over 10 minutes left and then that was it for Michael Porter who played really well in this game. I mean, 10 points, nine rebounds, two assists, two steals uh, for a guy who usually has like one assist and zero steals. Uh, really one of his better all-around games, especially considering he did only play 17 minutes. Yeah, they've been hesitant with Michael Porter all season. I, I think at some point, maybe the Clippers series, you know, it, you would think if you're up, if your backs are against the wall in a game seven against the Jazz, you know, maybe you would chance it. With Michael Porter, instead of going so heavy on Torrey Craig, who played 34 minutes, Gary Harris, you know, second game back after basically not playing for like six months, he plays more minutes than Michael Porter. Uh, but Michael Malone definitely seems to trust those two guys over Porter. And, and this is still without Will Barton. I, I, I do fear that as effective as Porter has been, there, there's a pretty good chance he's probably, you know, limited to like the 15 to 25 minutes that we kind of saw for a lot of this series going forward. I think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can play him when he's scorching hot, which he is like, what, once every one or two games. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, there will be some games where he plays 15, some games maybe where he plays 25. But uh, Malone won't be shy about being like creative with his lineups. But I don't know. Ultimately, the series was like, I mean, Denver got the win game seven, but it was not an encouraging series overall because I thought Denver could have won in, you know, five or six. Because mm -hmm. the Bogdanovich loss was huge for the Jazz. I mean, kudos to them for being able to make that up. But um, again, for you know a second year in the row, uh, a row, I'm not particular. Like the, it's not an encouraging uh, game seven win for for the Nuggets. So that's exactly what I wanted to address. Is you know we'll get to the Jazz, you know, kind of a post mortem on them in a second. But like we said, this game could have very easily gone the other way. And you know, I, I think. You know, now it's like, all right, great. We're into the second round if you're the Nuggets. You know, it, obviously you have a, a tough opponent awaiting in the Clippers. But for the second straight year, it just it just doesn't really feel like this team is is as locked in or as good as as the results maybe bear out. And I mean, regular season wise, they, they were a top three or four team really the entire season. That was the case last year as well. But, you know, like you said, I, I don't think as great as Donovan Mitchell was in this series, the Jazz, the Jazz are undermanned. Even when they're, you know, fully staffed, they're nowhere near the level of the Lakers or the Clippers or or the Bucks. Even even a team like Toronto or Boston. And even though the Nuggets are just kind of able to squeak by, you do wonder like how does that creep into your decision making process going forward? You know, if you if you get to the second round two years in a row, 
Um, is that good enough? Does that, you know, is, is it enough of a, like, let's say the Clippers beat them in four games. Is that considered like enough of a quote unquote failure that it maybe prompts you to look into a Brad Beal trade or, or something like that? Or, or is this a franchise that's just kind of content to kind of make in, these incremental improvements? That's a good question. Cause I don't, I, I don't know if you really consider this series a success and it's, I'm kind of getting flashbacks to like Portland who ended up being, you know, Denver in, in, in seven games and then getting absolutely destroyed by the Warriors. And I'm kind of feeling like this could happen to the Nuggets. Now, I think the Nuggets are, you know, have a better chance of of winning, uh, of not getting swept than the Blazers did against the Warriors. Um, but yeah, I don't, like you said, if if this ends up being a sweep, I think, um, yeah, that could still, I think that could still prompt some changes because first round wasn't great. Obviously, the second round wouldn't be great in that case. I mean, getting swept, by the Clippers isn't like the worst thing in the world considering they're one of the three mm-hmm. title favorites, but um, it's just, you know, it, it seems like the, the Nuggets are kind of just like chugging along, not, you know, just like bumping up against expectations and constantly like falling a little bit short. I think that's totally fair. You know, like you said, I, I think losing to the Clippers is respectable and the way that the NBA works, you know, sometimes you just kind of have to take, you take what you get in the playoffs. You know, if you lose, if you lose to a superior opponent, uh, that's just that's just kind of more acceptable, I guess. Whereas, you know, had had Denver say lost to the Spurs in round one last year, right. like that would have been a little bit more of a sound the alarm bells type of situation. And we'll see how this series plays out. But I, I think the other thing that they have to consider now is like, yes, it was only three games, but Jamal Murray, I think, has shown that he's at least capable of playing significantly better than he has you know during most of the regular season he's he's had these stretches uh usually it's for a quarter or a half or a single game not for a full playoff series but you know if you're denver i think you can now start talking or at least feeling better uh, about this massive extension for jamal murray that kicks in not that they didn't feel great about it but you know i think there's a belief now based on what we saw in games four five and six that like, would it be that crazy for Jamal Murray to, you know, be kind of close to like Damian Lillard level in, in three or four years? I, I know that's that's lofty, but I mean, it, it, if you if you go 50, 44 or 50 in, in three straight playoff games, I don't care who it's against. Um, I mean, that that's just to me, that's just a little bit more than a fluke. Yeah, he definitely fits that that mold of, of a Damian Lillard from a play, uh, you know, like, like a play style perspective and you know not anyone can go on these heaters you know the company he's in is basically like michael jordan and alan iverson are the names that keep going getting thrown around in terms of how many 50 point games or 40 point games in a series Corey brewer (laughs) and so yeah i think you this has to give the nuggets some confidence that this really can be their number two guy or if they can find a way to get a number two guy that murray is your number three is you're like you're absolutely locked into a championship caliber uh, lineup, but I think I'm I'm not ready to completely have that conversation and put it in ink until we see what happens uh, against the Clippers. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, I think you know, there it would be shocking if they beat the Clippers. Obviously, I think that would probably take an injury, but I, I think it's also fair to say that you can judge you can judge a season you know based on like how you lose. You know, if they just get absolutely housed in four straight games maybe that prompts that prompts you to change something that you wouldn't change if you lose in five games and you know four of them are, are pretty close so we'll see how it plays out um but like we said not not a lot of rest between series whereas the clippers uh, and the lakers who you know probably won't play their first game i think until friday uh, of the next series both of those teams should be well rested and uh, i think we're, we're firmly at least on track um, and we'll, we'll see how things play out, but we're on track, I think for the Lakers Clippers Western conference finals that we hope to get. That seems like it'll be the case. The Rotowire NBA show is brought to you by prediction strike. It's a fantasy sports stock market on which you can buy and sell shares of professional athletes as if they were stocks. Ever heard your friends say I've had stock in that player since day one. Well, prediction strike makes that a real possibility. You had stock in Patrick Mahomes, his rookie year. You knew this would happen. Now, that's a complete reality. Create a portfolio of all your favorite athletes and get closer to the game than ever before. This is basically exactly how I felt about OJ Mayo from day one. Still only 32, by the way. Tore it up in China last season. Just something to keep an eye on. Maybe an opportunity to buy low on OJ Mayo on Prediction Strike. To get started, simply visit PredictionStrike.com and create an account. 
Then deposit funds to buy, sell, and hold shares of your favorite players, just like you would with your real stock account. Each game is like an earnings report. If the player beats his projections, his stock moves up. It's that easy. You can trade your shares of players at any time, as long as the player is not currently playing in a game. You can get started with Prediction Strike today by visiting predictionstrike.com and sign up with our code ROTOWIRE to get an additional $10 off your first deposit of at least $20. That's code ROTOWIRE, R-O-T-O-W-I-R-E, for an additional 10 bucks with your first deposit of at least $20. Let's look at the other game, uh, the early game from Tuesday night, Celtics-Raptors. I, I don't know what, what's going on with the Raptors, man. 99 points uh, against yeah. a, a good but not great Boston defense. Uh, just a, two very un-Toronto-like performances to begin this series. And I, I think I was willing to, to write off game one as just a, a rough shooting night. You know, Kyle Lowry coming off of what, what looked like a fairly severe sprained ankle. Um, but then you come to game two and, you know, Fred Van Vliet, again, I think missed nine three-pointers in game one, missed nine three-pointers again in game two. Um, some incredible shot making late by the Celtics. And, and really that's been the overall story of the entire playoffs, I think, is, is individual guys stepping up and hitting really tough shots in tough spots. But uh, the combination of Jason Tatum and Marcus Smart, who hit five three-pointers in a row uh, <laughs> to begin the fourth quarter, all within the first four minutes and five seconds of the fourth. That was the story of the game in some ways. Like when you hear Marcus Smart hits five threes in a row, you're probably like, okay, that, that just probably ended it right there. His fifth three tied the game at I think 82 or 88. Like the game was by no means over at that point. And I, I think based on how Toronto's played, based on what we know about them, how they're coached, you, know, you you kind of felt like all right they weathered that now there's now this is their time to to kind of storm back and, and even the series and like watching them wilt late in in this game was just it was just very untoronto like we haven't seen that from them in a while it was this was a very back and forth game 19 lead changes and but toronto only won the third quarter that's the only quarter they won and i mean their shooting is an issue because they managed to win the turnover battle, they managed the offensive rebounding battle. Um, and yeah, they shot 11 of 40 from three. And I, I don't want to like simplify and say that it just comes down to that. But when you start looking at the box scores and, and everything, it's, you know, the, the Celtics shot 12% better from three. And usually that's, that's hard to recover from. Um, so I, I, I don't know what's going on with Toronto. I thought they'd win the series and win it relatively you know, decisively, um, five or six games. But we, I mean, we know we've known all year Boston is one of the best two-way teams in the league. Jason Tatum can go for thirty any night, um, and you know Marcus Smart had a great game. But other than that, like nobody else on the Celtics really played that well, right. and they still ended up with a win here. Yeah, and that's I think if you're Toronto, that's what's uh, pretty discouraging. You know, I think you look at. The, the three-point discrepancy, which you know ended up being 11 makes to 15 makes on, on a relatively similar percentage, um, or at least relatively similar number of attempts, I should say. But I think at the free throw line, um, you know, 16 makes versus 23 makes, and you know, 14 of those come from Jason Tatum. Uh, Nick Nurse after the game was was not thrilled. Might have a fine coming for for what he said. I, I think he used the the H word that the refs helped Jason Tatum. Usually that gives you a fine. Um, but this is this has been the case. I feel like in a lot of the the games that we've talked about, where the the higher seed loses or the favored team loses, where you start to worry a little bit when it's not just an off shooting game or you're missing somebody. You know, like when when your full team is out there and you know you you have an off night but not the the worst night, and the other team shoots 42% and still beats you, and they're you know one A player Kemba Walker goes one of eight from three to kind of offset your one A player Fred VanVleet going three of 12 from three. Uh, it's a little bit concerning, and I, I would not rule Toronto out of the series by any means. I don't think anyone is, but I mean Boston is very much in the driver's seat and is now a, a very easy six and zero. It's it felt like in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, part of me like wonders. I mean, the the Raptors and the Bucks were kind of in the same situation, hugging into the bubble, where they knew that none of the games they had to, none of the seeding games really mattered for them because they were. Mm-hmm. like mostly locked into their seeds and then they got a cakewalk in the first round. So they played, you know, I mean, they basically played like 10, 12 meaningless games, relatively speaking that everyone expected them to win or it didn't matter if they won. 
And then all of a sudden they get thrown into a legitimate series against a really good team, especially good, both good defensive teams on very little rest with very little prep time. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if like, that's just a really hard uh, gear shift to make and the Raptors and the, you know, the Bucks lost too. I'm just wondering if, if that's kind of like, it's really bothering them. I buy into that for sure with Milwaukee because they were visibly struggling with that during seeding play and even during the Orlando series. But I mean, Toronto just Toronto was the best team I thought during during seeding games, even That's though true. they were they were monitoring minutes and some guys were sitting. Like they were just they looked like you know they looked like they had been practicing for like two months longer than anyone else. They were in sync, and that carried over against Brooklyn. I, I think maybe you could make the case that when you're when you're so overmatched in round one maybe that instills some bad habits i mean I, I feel like i'm kind of reaching with that even but you know game four of that series against brooklyn toronto was going like 70 percent and scored 150 points like they scored 51 fewer points in this game in this game on tuesday than they did in the final game of that series so i mean this this team won the title last year like they're they're disciplined enough that you would think one game or one series against the nets wouldn't you you know wouldn't like lull you to sleep but I think it's a pretty big leap going from Brooklyn to to Boston. And you know, I don't know how much Kyle Lowry's ankle is bothering him. He was 0 of 7 from 3, 5 of 16 from the field. Um, really was not great in this game. They, they haven't gotten a lot out of Marc Gasol. He fouled out in only 21 minutes. Um, it, it's been interesting to me that that neither Philly uh, nor Toronto, despite having you know ample talent at center, have really been able to make the Celtics pay for their relative lack of talent at center, right? I mean, that was the big knock on the Celtics all year. The one concern in the back of your mind was they never really figured out how to replace Al Horford. And they've been able to get away completely with just playing Daniel Tice and, you know, a few semi-Ojale minutes here and there. Grant Williams played almost 20 minutes in this game. Um, and the team with, you know, Marcus Gasol and, and Serge Ibaka, uh, a potential future Hall of Famer in Gasol and then a, a really, really solid player in Ibaka, they just weren't able to make them pay. Yeah, well, after we've seen Horford, I'm starting to wonder if Daniel, how close Daniel Tice is to yeah, being as good as Al Horford. That's now. a fair point. Um, yeah, I mean, it is. They really teams are not making the Celtics pay. I mean, they they run. You know, they're able to run five out. It's really effective because they have. I mean, basically anyone other than I mean Walker, Tatum, Brown, Smart, all those guys can beat you off the dribble, and when you play five out like that. It's just really hard for a defense to adjust. And when when they're hitting their shots for the most part, it's good. They can and if they're not, they penetrate the kick. So yeah, I think it's it's I think sometimes the scheme, you know, can be better than than the individual player. Now this the Raptors should be able to do the same thing, right? Because they have Abaca and Gasol who can both hit threes, but they have they just have one fewer guy. You know, they start Ananobi, he's not really doing anything off the dribble. So I don't know. I mean, part of me thinks this is just like some really bad shooting from the Raptors and they'll they'll bounce back and they might, you know, they could easily get like a 20 point win next game. But it's it's hard not to be concerned after two consecutive very bad outings. I think the like the first take headline on Wednesday is probably like how much of the Raptors miss Kawhi Leonard. (laughs) And I mean, the answer is a lot. They they clearly were able to survive just fine without him during the regular season. But you're really starting to see, like, as much as I love Pascal Siakam, like his his just like Tasmanian devil act from half court is really not going to get you anywhere. OG Ananobi was great in this game, but most of his points came from spot up threes. You know, Marcus All at this point, I, I I think he should be playing significantly fewer minutes. Lowry Van Vliet, both good players. It, no, neither of those guys are a level number one guy in a full playoff series type of players. And I mean, as great as Toronto has been collectively. When you don't have that guy and the other team has Jason Tatum, who is you know one of the best shot makers in the league now at this point, um, you know, it, it just seems like Toronto doesn't really have that defined hierarchy where, you know, if you if you went into a game last year in the playoffs with Kawhi Leonard and it's basically tied with one or two minutes left, Kawhi Leonard is, is either making the play or shooting the ball on every single possession. And right now, Toronto just doesn't really seem to. To, to, to know like where the ball is going in those scenarios. And it's, it's not all, all that surprising, but I think in the, when you paint it against the light of how successful they were without him all regular season, it is kind of jarring to see. Yeah. I, I mean, Boston's also doing this without Gorgon Hayward. So, I mean, that's, that's another kind of knock against the Raptors that they're just, 
they're <laughs> Celtics are down like they're already giving up, you know, 17 points a game from not having Hayward around. And the Raptors still can't get it done. And I think, you know, to some extent, these teams are are very they're they're pretty evenly matched. Um, and so it, it really could just come down to who has the best player in the series and that team wins the series. Mm-hmm. And right now it's Jason Tatum. Celtics have the advantage. It certainly does seem that way. I I wrote briefly for the site earlier this week about Tatum, and it wasn't a deep dive by any means, but it was just just kind of a another reminder that I and I was actually kind of surprised myself when I when I did the research on this, like just how like how differently his season has gone, um, you know, since like mid January compared right. to where it was at that time. I mean, through over halfway through the regular season, I think like 38 games in, like he was shooting 42 percent. From the field, it was having a nice year. Was averaging about 20 points a game. Really wasn't all that efficient. Um, and, and just you know, it was it was kind of like Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown for the All Star game. Complete toss up. And I love Jalen Brown, but like that question is ludicrous in retrospect. Uh, I have the numbers up now. 36 games in, he was at 20.8 points, 42% from the field, 35% from three, 86 at the line, uh, 2.8 assists, and about two combined blocks and steals per game. So a very solid year. But I mean, ever since then, he has just been a completely different player. And I think the, the the shutdown of the season kind of provided this gap where we had about, you know, 36 games of him being OK and then 30 games of being really good. And then it was kind of like, all right, we, we have two samples. Which is it going to be when he arrives in Orlando? And it's been very clearly the latter. And I, I think at this point, um, that's just kind of how we have to evaluate him going forward. Right. Like if you had to say for next season, like over under 27 points a game for Jason Tatum. Like I, I wouldn't necessarily, I don't think it's out of the question that he could average like close to 30 a game next year and, and kind of be right there challenging Harden for a scoring title already. Yeah. I mean, like, like you said, basically like is his past, I mean, his last 30 regular seating season games, which includes the seating games, it was 27 mm-hmm. points a game on 48, 45, 77 shooting. And you have to imagine that free throw percentage can bump up a little bit. Yep. Um, and that's in addition to like basically two and a half combined steals and blocks. So yeah, he is, he's very much on that trajectory of like, this is kind of the, the elite wing player mold. Um, and he, the, the mid season breakout stuck and you're right. Like he, he went from 15 points to 23 points from last year to this year. And so another jump like that closer to 30, is not completely out of the question. Like they don't, they clearly don't need him to score 30 a night. You know, they have other options on the team that can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, can he score 30 a night? Yeah, of course. And can he's, he, he's proven he can do it and do it pretty efficiently. It's it's a little too early to, to close the book on Toronto, but if they do flame out in this series, whether it's four games, five games, six games, seven games, um, I mean, I think people were so sure like a week ago that this team was going to be the one to knock off Milwaukee and, and go to the right. finals and put, you know, nobody was respecting the Raptors. And that's that's just been completely turned on its head. And, and you know, who knows how the series goes. But, you know, if they were to lose in round two, does this finally prompt the I feel like you and I have been talking about this for like three years now. <laughs> but like, does this finally prompt, you know, kind of a mini rebuild on the fly? I, I don't know. I you know, because it didn't happen this year, I feel like I'm less confident in saying it'll happen soon. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I, I think Gasol is close to done. Like you mentioned, like I see him out there and he's, he's the slowest guy on, or I think he's actually the slowest person on earth. Um, yes, like he, correct. he really looks 35, uh, when he's out there and like, but I mean, clearly like Lowry still has a lot of life in him and Ibaka is only 30 and that, you know, like they have, they have some young guys coming up. Like, I, I don't know if they, if they really are going to blow it up. I mean, they have some contracts that they might prefer to move, but I, th- I mean, they have the coach of the year. I mean, do you, do you do a rebuild? Is it even possible to really execute a rebuild like that when you have, you know, the coach of the year and, and Nick nurse on your bench? I mean, the Hawks kind of dig it with Budenholzer, mm-hmm. but he left very quickly. And, um, I, I just I feel like they don't want to give up on that so quickly. I mean, should Nick Nurse be stripped of his coach of the year title if they lose the series in four or five games? <laughs> should he? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, that that is kind saying. of a subplot. Like, I, I don't consider myself enough of like a coaching expert to really 
think deeply about this, but I mean, for all the Nick Nurse lovers out there, and, and the same, I think Bud kind of got the same treatment last year. You know, like if, if they don't adjust next game, and all of a sudden they're down 3-0, I, I think there's there's going to be kind of a hard reckoning on on that whole situation. I think when you look at Toronto's construction, it, it's going to be tough for them to like actually like quote unquote like execute a rebuild just because like I, I think last summer would have been the time for them to like have those decisions in their hands because like Marcus Gasol's up after this year. Serge Ibaka's up after this year. You would think those are pretty easy decisions. You know, maybe you try to bring Ibaka back at a lower cost if you can, but those guys are making a combined $49 million this year. So those decisions are kind of made for themselves. I think that the big question is obviously Van Vliet. How hard do they go after him in terms of retaining him? You have Lowry at $30.5 million next year. You know, does he become somebody that maybe you look to trade? I, I think how they handle Van Vliet and Lowry is basically going to be an indicator of, of – where they think they are over the next three to five years. Right. And, you know, without Van Vliet on the books, they have $86 million guaranteed next year to players, I think. So if they end up signing him to basically close to a max deal, they'll be very much, they won't be able to do a ton else. But then you're right. Like if, if you keep Van Vliet and you can kind of get Ibaka at a discount and maybe you move Lowry for some pieces it's not like a true rebuild. Maybe Norman Powell continues, continues his development. Ojiang Anobi should be a little bit better. Um, I think it's almost impossible for them, like you're like you're saying, to execute an actual rebuild. And I think they'll just they'll kind of re they'll just they'll just retool. Yeah, they're in a great spot to do that. And obviously, yeah. when you win a title, especially when you're in a franchise that's that's in the Raptors' position, you buy a lot of goodwill and a lot of. Um, you know, just benefit of the doubt, I guess, from that fan base. So I don't think they're under like a ton of pressure to to get it right this offseason. Like they they bought themselves like a solid decade of goodwill by winning that title last year. Let's pivot over to uh, Monday night Bucks Heat. Eerily reminiscent of uh, of uh, Bucks Magic game one, I thought in a lot of ways, <laughs> but it felt a little different because the opponent uh, is obviously so much stronger in Miami. I don't know, man. This. This, this was just a, a very, we, we talked about Toronto having some un-Toronto-like performances. Um, this is becoming a, more of a trend with Milwaukee. And another game where you look at the box score and think, man, well, maybe, you know, Butler got hot late. That was tough. You know, Adebayo was beating him up on the boards. But, I mean, Milwaukee went 16 of 35 from three and shot 49% from the field. And that's on a night when Giannis had one of his worst games of the entire season. Only took 12 shots in the game only had eight shots going into the fourth quarter, um, turned it over six times. You know, the Heat did a great job, as they always do, of just walling him off. Essentially, once he gets within 30 feet of the basket, you have anybody in the vicinity is on high alert to help on Giannis. And Bam Adebayo once again proved that he is, I think, at this point, the number one guy that you want defending Giannis Antetokounmpo one-on-one. But that aside, I mean, Chris Middleton had his best game of the playoffs by far. Brooke Lopez hit four threes. He's been cold really for most of the year. Um, you know, didn't they didn't get a great performance from the bench, but um, you know, I, I think when you when Milwaukee hits 16 threes and shoots it at a 46% clip, they almost always win. And I, I think it's another game where they look up and say, you know, this this formula has been working for us all regular season. Why is it not working now? Yeah, you and I as Bucks fans were nervous coming into this series. We also did a series preview for uh, the site, which was not a pleasure to write uh, because it really felt like the Heat. You, like if you if you threw out all everything that happened to the regular season except when these two teams played each other, you would think the Heat would be favored in this series. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. I mean, they do a really good job of walling Giannis off and making him look like just kind of another guy out there. Um, which is incredible because that's really difficult to do. But when you commit to it as a defense, it can, it can obviously happen. Um, and the concern for, yeah, like the concern for the Bucks has to be that they they shot better than Miami. Um, they hit 46% of their threes and they lost. Um, you know, the the Heat slowed, the, the Heat controlled the game. They just dominated it. They slowed the pace down. They turned the ball over less. They grabbed more rebounds. They got to the free throw line. Everything that doesn't involve just making shots from the floor mm-hmm. Miami won and dominated. Yeah, Milwaukee had 15 fast break points in this game, which isn't a massive total, but you know they outscored Miami in that respect. But just 24 
points in the paint, and that's directly tied to Giannis, who you know result, basically produces the, their entire total on a lot of nights. Right. But like you said, I think pointing out the pace is is a great point. I mean, this was paid at very much a Miami Heat type of pace and very much a playoff Miami Heat type of pace, whereas the Bucks, I mean, the Bucks want to want to be running and gunning. They want to be in transition, and if Giannis isn't finishing, they want to be drawing fouls. They didn't really do much of that at all. I mean, Giannis did get to the line 12 times, but you know they were they were just kind of more routine type of fouls, um, and and only hitting four of those 12 was ultimately the killer, I think, for Milwaukee. I mean, you don't expect Giannis to go 12 of 12, but I mean, this is a completely different game if he just hits five more of those over the course of the game. Um, but I, th- I think Milwaukee once again just kind of looked a, a little bit tentative, looked a little bit shell shocked when when Butler and and the Heat went on that run. Uh, with about four or five minutes left in the fourth quarter. And kind of the same thing I, I brought up with Siakam and with Toronto. I, I hate to, I really don't want to just like have the, you know, is Giannis not a closer discussion? Because I, I think that's just really played out. But I think when you look at it from a, an evidence-based standpoint, it's when when you when you cannot, I'm trying to frame this as, as nicely as I can. When you cannot, when you're not a threat to pull up or step back or have a shuffle to create space and, and hit a 30-footer, that's a disadvantage in today's NBA. It wasn't a disadvantage 10 years ago or 15 years ago, but it is now. And when you when you look at a lot of the shots that Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray or even guys like Kawhi Leonard, LeBron James, you know, Damian Lillard, whoever it is, like the guys that are hitting big shots and closing out games, they're not all 35 foot threes. But when the defense is locked in and everybody's keyed in on you, you're not going to get to the rim. And it's a pretty major problem for Milwaukee because as good as Chris Middleton is, He's not really a space creator. He's not a you know a super athlete who you can just say you know go one on one and get a great look here. He doesn't really do that. And we saw last night like when when the Bucks are forced into situations where Giannis has to be that guy. Not that he can't do it, but when there's a good defender on him, it just leads to trouble. He has no choice but to just kind of plow into this wall. And and it looked like the way he was playing last night, he was just hoping to get a foul more than anything else. Yeah, I mean. That's that's a lot of the reason I've liked the Giannis at center lineups. And like it it's it's tough because I think a lot of the times using him as like a pick and roll guy to draw the defense in makes a ton of sense. But you're like taking the ball out of the MVP's hands and make just turning him into him turning him into a pick and roll guy seems like insane. And he probably doesn't want to do it. And I'm sure Bud doesn't really want to do it. But I think those are the times often where the Bucks offense makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I there are also other things like you mentioned Middleton. Middleton is a zero threat to get to the rim. He does not like to do layups. So like you're like he can he can he can you know shake and bake people. He'll he'll pull up for 15 feet. He'll do like the Kobe stuff, but he won't actually ever really drive past you and go to the rim. He's not going to force the issue. He's not getting to the free throw line. He had 28 points, zero free throws, um, and. I get a third thing. I'm just laying it on here. Please the, continue. The there were times where okay, Adebayo played 38 minutes in this game. Pretty much the other 10 minutes, Tyler Hero or excuse me, Kelly Olynyk was at center. Same guy. Same guy. Um, I was really frustrated that Bud did not just pound Brook Lopez in the post and like give Lopez put Lopez in the game, put him in the post, and post up Kelly Olynyk for. just the entire Mm -hmm. time. Um, That was really frustrating because I felt like Bud was reacting to Spolstra and that Spolstra went small. So Bud went small and put Giannis at center. I just feel like you, you need to punish when they do that because you Mm -hmm. have Lopez who is a good post player for the most part and someone who is at least a good free throw shooter. So when he, he can just draw free throws. So that was, that was frustrating to watch as well. Yeah, and I mean, this is the second straight playoffs now where where Bud has faced some major questions about, you know, I, I think the adjustments are, are the first thing that you usually hear, you know, the lack of adjustments. Um, but once again, just kind of refusing to extend his best players. Um, and, and in this game, the way Giannis was playing, I, I didn't really fault him. He played 37 minutes, probably shouldn't have played too many more, did have six turnovers, like we mentioned. Uh, Middleton ended up falling out in his 37 minutes. But I mean, at some point, what was the, what was the point of Giannis playing under 30 minutes this year? You know, I mean, I, I it, playing 44 minutes is not unrealistic to me. And I, I know he's a high volume foul player, uh, and that's a bit of True. an issue. Um, and that that oftentimes dictates some of his minute limitations. But 
in the playoffs, man, like he, he just has to be out there. Um, and especially something we haven't haven't hit on yet with respect to this game. They have not found a way to get Pat Connaughton or Dante DiVincenzo going <laughs> whatsoever. And I, I hate to keep harping on DiVincenzo every week, but he was terrible again. And, you know, as I've said many times, I, I think a big part of the reason why Milwaukee was able to weather the loss of Malcolm Brogdon and look no worse for the wear is because Dante DiVincenzo was extremely good for a huge part of the regular season. And he still has not looked like that guy whatsoever in Orlando. I, I was starting to look at some of the three-man lineups just for fun um, you know, in the playoffs. So we're still looking at a fair, fairly small sample, just five games. But some of these lineups have you know, 50, 60, 70 plus minutes together at this point. DiVincenzo, Corver, and Pat Connaughton, at least one of those guys is involved in 16 of the Bucks' 18 worst lineups in terms of just straight-up <laughs> differential when those lineups are on the court. I mean, and there oftentimes it's two of them together. You know, like I just think you have to get to the point where, I mean, they played ten guys. Milwaukee did in this game. One of those was Frank Mason, who only played two minutes, bizarrely in the first quarter for some reason. Okay. <laughs> uh, but at that time, things were things were rolling. Like the Bucks put up forty in the first quarter and finished this game with one hundred and four points, eighteen points in the fourth quarter uh, for the Milwaukee Bucks. But I think that rotation needs to be tightened up significantly. I mean, Miami played nine guys. One of them was Olenek, who played eight minutes. They basically played eight guys the entire game. I think if you're Milwaukee, you you chop off DiVincenzo for now. You certainly chop off Frank Mason. And I think you have to be really, really, uh, you know, really kind of strategic, I guess, with how you use Kyle Korver. Because not only for Milwaukee, I mean, even two, three, four years ago, um, when he was with Atlanta and, and with Cleveland, I mean, there were there were games in the finals and in the Eastern Conference finals where he was just not playing because of his limitations defensively. And it, it just felt like, you know, he does give you spacing. Obviously, he's still a, a remarkable shooter when he's open. But I mean, to me, he's a guy who should be playing like eight or nine minutes in very specific lineups and very specific stints, not 16 minutes in a game of this magnitude. I mean, we might be one loss away from Bucks fans actually calling for Frank Mason to play more. So I, I don't want yeah. you to say that he should be pulled from the lineup. Um, well, we should mention too, Eric Bledsoe did not play in this game. We I was, was going to get to that. But at the same time, like as, as people who've watched the Bucks, you know, so often over these last couple of years, I don't, I don't think I've heard one person say, well, we didn't have Bledsoe. It was yeah. more just like, <laughs> I don't even think it matters. <laughs> he is weirdly forgettable. Um, and well, I, I think people, think people have no faith that he's going to help the team when he's healthy. Right. But they, they need him <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, the Bucks. they just, I, it's it's tough. I, I, I honestly don't know what, like I outlined things I, I just, you know, didn't like, but I don't really know what else they're going to do very differently here. Also, because Giannis, Giannis missing his free throws is a, that's a problem. Like he cannot go four for 12. Like it, you, you can't win. Okay. Like he, he's not Shaq. Like it's it's not going to happen where you can go four for twelve and you're going to win games consistently. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I don't think it's fair to to just place the the onus completely on that. Uh, I, I think he, I don't know if it's on him. I don't know if it's on the Bucks coaching staff to to find a way to open things up. But I, I, to me, the twelve free twelve field goal attempts, excuse me, is a bigger deal than the eight missed free throws. That's fine, and five of those should not have been three pointers. Oh goodness, yeah. Well, that's that's a whole that's a whole different story. And this this felt like a good Giannis three point game, right? Well, it was forty percent, right? And the, the two that he hit were were just walk right up, very smooth. Um, I guess like I didn't necessarily mind him taking those as as an observer, but I, I always think it's funny too that like this was one of his better three point shooting games, or at least his more confident three point shooting games. And then he steps up and air balls a free throw like five minutes later, like. Yep. For me personally, as someone who had an extensive middle school and you know early high school basketball career, if I had a day where I was feeling it from three, I was probably going to knock down all my free throws. Like it's, it, it doesn't make sense to me that you could shoot the ball really well, handle the ball well, and then step up to the line and airball a free throw. I, I don't have an explanation you for it. Do you have any it. insight on this? Okay. Zero insight. <laughs> so the, the Bucks are five-point favorites for game two. That's up from four and a half uh, early on Tuesday morning, now up to five. Um this is kind of the standard line, I feel like, for when the, the 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 favored team loses game one. It's always like, all right, they'll, they'll get it back in game two. You know, usually, you don't see Vegas pivot all of a sudden to to the underdog. How confident are you that that the Bucks actually bounce back and and you know get right back into the series? Not confident. And, no. Uh, no. I'm and not 
I don't know if I would take. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure I would take Miami plus five, but I can't really argue against it. Like I would be nervous to have a bet on Milwaukee. Like I would. I would not feel good about it. I, I actually like the under the most. I think it's at 221 right now. Yeah. I don't, neither of these. The the pace is so slow. Neither of these teams are gonna. The Bucks are not. As as much as it's wild to say, the Bucks are not gonna continue to shoot this well. Um. So. I'm, I'm, I like the under more, but I wouldn't. I would not have confidence in in taking Bucks minus five. That's for sure. All right, let's finish out with tonight's game seven, Rockets Thunder. Houston is a five and a half point favorite in this one. I don't know what to think at all. Yeah, I, right. I, I, yeah. I think this one. Like, I, I believe Jazz Nuggets last I checked. I think that closed at at Denver minus point five. So basically, a straight up pick 'em. I, I feel like this this one should be going in the same direction. Well, I, that's that's tough. I mean, Westbrook has been terrible, um, and I mean, ever since they got Westbrook back, their line hasn't been less than five. He's been at least a five-point favorite every game that they've the, the three games now that they they've had Westbrook and that they will have Westbrook. I'm with you. Like, I would not. Again, this is not a game I would want money on. I do not have any confidence in either team. Like, OKC could go completely ice cold from the field, like they have been almost all series. Um, like they, they do a really good job of, of rebounding, playing good defense. Um, they get to the free throw line a lot. And I think those things are like stickier than shooting, but the Rockets bread and butter is just having a game where they score 150 points. And it doesn't really matter how good of defense the other team is playing. So, um, <laughs> this one's tough. I don't, I really don't know who I would take in this. Like I, I picked Houston to win the series. So I guess I'll stick with that. Cause I think the talent will win yeah. out, but Again, not would not be surprised if OKC won. That's the same way I'm leaning as well, and pretty much for the same reason, because we've seen when Houston plays well, they're clearly the better team, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I don't even think anyone's saying OKC's better. I, I think where OKC has the advantage is with some of the intangible things. Like, the reason that they've won basically every game that they've won in the series so far is because Houston can't close. And as much credit is due to OKC... A lot of it, if you watch that game on Monday night, was the Rockets just having no composure down the stretch. And, you know, James Harden not demanding the ball. Russell Westbrook flying in out of control with no plan. You know, multiple late turnovers in that game. Uh, I mean, I, I love Russell Westbrook, but it, it is hard to, like, single-handedly throw away a game the way that he did in, in game six. And, and I know Harden's drawn a lot of criticism for not, you know, just basically— I think people just want him to walk up to Westbrook and just rip the ball away. Um I, I would rather have James Harden handling the ball late in games. Yeah. But at the same time, you didn't really bring Russell Westbrook in to be just a standby guy, right? No, but this has happened before, and it's just really jarring to watch an entire Rockets game where Harden has the ball all game long. He's just mm -hmm. dribbling the entire game, and then the last two minutes of the game come, and he's just standing around without the ball. Like, it's just really jarring to see. And you're kind of just like, what, like, why is he, why is James Harden in the corner? Like, why is James Harden on the wing right. and not have the ball right now? He was uh, out of frame at the end of that game at times. <laughs> yeah, he was. Yeah, that's the thing. He, really he was. literally stand at half court. <laughs> it's like, what is going on? This is, right. uh, this, this is good. What is, might be the best, one of the best offensive players ever. Definitely yep. is one of the best offensive players ever. Just hanging out around half court without the ball with like two minutes left mm -hmm. in a crucial game. Like, what is going on? So there is enough of a sample with this now where I understand the debate. Do you think it's actually fair to question whether Harden just doesn't want to handle the ball in those situations, doesn't want to, you know, risk failure or whatever, whatever the case is? Like, do you do you think that's actually a fair argument? I think so. I, he's just he's continuously avoided it. Yeah, I mean, there there definitely are players who would just go and take the ball. That's that's the thing. I think there we've seen other guys do it. So then it's just expected that if you're the best guy, if you're the what three, four time scoring champ, whatever he is now, you're just gonna go get the ball. So it, it is like kind of weird to see a guy who's an MVP and who has the three top two MVP finishes to just not do that, I guess. Um but at the same time, like knowing what we know about Russell Westbrook, like he's not just gonna stand by either. So I don't know. Mike D'Antoni said after the game Monday that the, the play was for Westbrook to basically fly in and kick it out to Harden. I don't think I believe that at all. Like if you watch that <laughs> final play, he's not, not passing it to Harden. I think he, I think he was passing it to Covington when it just goes out of bounds. 
Harden is in no position to receive a pass whatsoever. I mean, I think what you have to do is I mean, get the ball to James Harden. Step one, obviously. If, if you, I understand the point that like Westbrook's not a great spot up shooter. You know, people are guys are just going to help off him and, and swarm Harden. That's probably true. But Westbrook will at least move around. Like, and when when Westbrook is flying in, yeah, maybe he's looking to kick. But James Harden is not, you know, going to make his way around the perimeter, cut to the hoop, like. Westbrook will at least find a way to slash to the rim and maybe receive right. a pass for a layup or draw a foul. Whereas it seems like when Harden is not directly handling the ball, he's just uninvolved completely. I just don't know why your end of game game plan, if you're the Rockets, would be any different than what you do for the entire game, which is ISO James Harden, spread everyone else out. Why is that not happening? Like, why is it anything else? in the late game. Like that's your entire offense. That's what's right. supposed that's, to win you the game. That's a fair point. Right. You've been you did you do that for 47 and a half minutes and then now it's Westbrook time. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, what I'd like to see them do is like I, mean, I know like LeBron has, you know, been prone to standing around when he doesn't have the ball throughout his career, but in those peak Cavs years with Kyrie, like they would they would run a lot of late game stuff for Kyrie and and LeBron's move would just be to like dive straight to the rim and Kyrie would get to the hoop, often get walled off or shut down. And like there's LeBron just kind of cutting free throw line extended for a pass. And I mean, it's, it's basically the play that, you know, in, in game seven of the finals when he you know broke his wrist and then still made the free throw um, on that Draymond dunk. Like Westbrook can do that. And I, I think it's just it's insane that that Harden is not the one handling the ball when when you have a one of the great slashers and one of the great guard finishers of all time on the roster. I mean, I, I do think we should talk a little bit about OKC. Uh, on their side of this game, whether they win or not, this has already been a victory, right? I mean, I, I think for Chris Paul specifically, it would be huge to to kind of get his personal vengeance against Houston. But like from a franchise perspective, like the Thunder have been playing with house money since they went on that run in in January and February. And even if they lose in game seven, this has been a remarkably successful season for that team. I mean, just from the the moment that they lost Kevin Durant until now, like how many teams lose a Kevin Durant caliber player and then, you know, run off a string of years like this? I mean, right. the Raptors are they're they're flirting with it with with the Kawhi Leonard situation. But I mean, Oklahoma City just like I'm I'm happy for them. I'm happy for, for Chris right. Paul. It's just it's been an awesome season. Yeah, that is a good point. Even just to look back from a team building perspective and say in like 2016, be like, all right. Kevin Durant's going to lead this team, but in the next three years, both Paul George and Chris Paul will pass through Oklahoma City. Right. Like, <laughs> right I don't exactly. The Paul George thing seems like that was five years ago already. Like that, that's a distant. Um, from a Chris Paul perspective, I mean, obviously, I, regardless of what happens, unless they win the title, which I, I will go out on a limb and say I, I don't think that's going to happen. Mm. There's going to be talk about about his future just because the the, the Thunder are a you know a, a progressive franchise in terms of how they think. I, I don't think. They're going to let one, you know, kind of feel good season affect their decision making. But I think there's a case to be made that his trade value, despite being a year older, has has improved dramatically. You know, even as his contract is is still a burden, you know, he's he's one year older. And I, I think you could get maybe more or at least the same value for Chris Paul now than you could have a year ago. Whereas I think there's a lot of worry that that his value would would maybe drop if they didn't trade him before the deadline this year or didn't trade him last offseason. I mean, if we're talking like his trade value, I think it's probably peaked right now, right? Can you imagine it getting yeah. any, even if they lose this series, can you imagine his trade value getting any higher for the rest of his career than it is right now? No, I don't, not for the rest of his career, certainly not. No, I think right this moment, it's at its highest. It would be the time to trade him, I think. Yeah, yeah. Interesting offseason ahead, certainly, for, for OKC. And I mean, CP wanted to go to the Bucks. Last summer, allegedly, depending on on you know how much you nice. believe what you read, but um, I mean, he certainly still has at least another you know kind of Kyle Lowry type of year you would think left in the tank, or maybe two or three of those. All right, Alex, we're out of time. Uh, thank you for listening to the Roadwire NBA Show on Dash Radio. We'll be back next Wednesday. 
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.